Welcome to the Lady Preacher Podcast, a podcast for the progressive Christian, where we talk about an all-loving God, an embodied Christ, and an ever-moving spirit. Dive right in as we wrestle with what it means to live out our faith in the world. Hello, welcome to the Lady Preacher Podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Beebe, and today we are navigating a conversation about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and those who have it and are trying to navigate their faith life. We have on Reverend Katie O'Dunn, who is the founder of Faith and Mental Health Integrative Services, which is an organization that helps individuals with OCD and related disorders live into their faith tradition. I'm so honored to have had this conversation. I truly learned a lot. I don't know about you, but I am so familiar with the ways that we kind of throw around the term OCD. You know, we'll say, oh, I'm so OCD because I I need things neat and tidy, but it really is something that goes so much deeper than that, you know, surface level that isn't actually what OCD is. I hope that you listen to this conversation with an open mind. I hope that you learn something. I learned a lot. And may we leave this conversation having a deeper understanding and a deeper respect for folks who have mental health challenges that we know nothing about, that we're not aware of. If you are someone who has OCD, I hope that this interview helps you feel seen. I hope that it gives you hope. and. May it let all of us know that we are not alone as we struggle with our faith for various reasons. Again, I am so grateful to Reverend Katie O'Dunn for coming on and being with us. I'll let her tell you a little bit more about herself. Just know that afterwards, I will put all the links in the show notes so that you can get connected, so that you can get support if you need it, and so that you can know that there's hope and that you're not alone. Before we begin, and I let Katie introduce herself, let's say a quick prayer together. God, who created each and every one of us, we give you thanks for the things that make us unique. We give you thanks for giving us people in our lives who remind us that we are not alone. God, we ask that you bless all of those, all of us who struggle with various mental illnesses and challenges. We ask that you be with those who are listening today, who are part of the community of folks who have OCD. We ask that you help them know that they are not alone. God, I pray for each person listening today. May they feel your grace upon them. May your peace be with them. And may a sense of hope be ever present in their lives. Gracious God, you give us the gift of one another reminding us always that we get to experience your love through other people. We ask that you open our hearts and our minds and fill our well today and every day. In your holy name, amen. Hi, Katie. Welcome. So thank you. Thank you so much, Kelsey. I'm excited to be here and, and to chat about all the things. So thanks for, thanks for having me. 
Oh, me too. Well, to get us primed up and ready, can you tell us who you are? What do you love? Where are you located? Just a little bit about you and your various roles in the world and who you are. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm Katie. I live right now in Atlanta, Georgia, just a little bit south um, of Atlanta, actually in Noonan. And I am an ordained UCC minister, um, went to Candler School of Theology um, for, for that, and I'm now pursuing my doctor of ministry in integrative chaplaincy at Vanderbilt. So getting to do some more education in, in fun ways, um, and get to do a lot of kind of non-traditional ministry. Um, and excited to chat about some of that today, but the, the short of it is currently, um, shifting out of a role that I've been serving in for the last seven years as a school chaplain for 2,700 kiddos of diverse religious backgrounds and shifting into work around faith and mental health full-time. Um, and then when I'm not doing those things, um, I'm an ultra marathon runner and, um, I'll chat about that probably a little bit too. And then also recently engaged as of in the last two weeks. So lots of, lots of fun, um, fun life things and transitions kind of going on at the same time. Absolutely. Well, congratulations again on that engagement. That's so exciting. Thank you. Are you feeling like questions from people about like, okay, Wednesday and da, da, da. like, I feel immediately. like immediately. Soon- yeah, right. <laughs> it was immediate. Yeah. It was so immediate. It was funny because we got engaged and then I came back to work and the first thing everybody came up, okay, where is it? When's it going to happen? I was like, wow, y'all. So, but we do think we kind of have, we're thinking September 30th, 2023. So we're kind of planning that a little ways out, um, to get all of that in. Cause it's, it's a lot right now with that. And again, transitioning jobs and I'm starting a practice and it's just, um, a lot of, yeah, lots of questions from folks. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I remember that too. And we got engaged. It was like, can I just have a minute? (laughs) Oh, totally. Well, and then it was funny because my family, um, loves Ethan and they're incredibly, incredibly excited, but within a day, my mom had sent me like 60 wedding venues too. And I was like, okay, mom, like (laughs) we're good. We've got this. (laughs) Oh man. That's amazing. I love the, like the eagerness. It's great. Mm -hmm. Let's know it is. Let's dive into your story. Tell us a little bit about how you find yourself, where you are, maybe not right now, because I know you're transitioning out, but maybe like where you're going in a couple of weeks and, you know, how you got there, how you got to this place. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think this is such an interesting time to talk about this because I've been reflecting on it a lot. Um, I'm in a place now that I didn't really ever think that I would be quite honestly. Um, so my story has a couple different <laughs> parallel pieces running, but, um, went, well, I guess from before I can remember, um, I navigated obsessive compulsive disorder and I'll talk more about that today, but OCD is not what a lot of folks think of when they see cute, quirky, kind of funny stuff on TV. That's not at all what it is. It's not a cute quirk. It's a debilitating disorder. That's really identical identified by pretty intense, intrusive thoughts that are egotistonic, that are in opposition to what the sufferer really wants or believes. And then they're also characterized by lots of different compulsions to try to alleviate that discomfort. Um, And I started experiencing signs of that around the age of eight and um, 
really, you know, my parents didn't know what was going on for the first time, took me to a, psychi a psychologist who also didn't diagnose me properly, which is pretty common with, with OCD. Um, it takes on average 17 years for someone to get the effective diagnosis and treatment. Um, and at the time, I pretended that I got better because part of the disorder is around people pleasing and around wanting folks to be happy. We call that moral scrupulosity. Um, so I pretended to get better because I wanted him to think he was good at his job. So got sent on my way and um, continued really to get sicker in a lot of ways um, throughout my life. And the thing with me, there are some folks who are very high functioning with OCD. I'm one of those folks. There are others who are not. Um, my partner went through a period of life where unfortunately there were some really some moments that were really really tough just to to get up from and and move through life on a day-to-day -day basis and a lot of folks have that experience um for me the high functioning piece was actually pretty detrimental because it allowed me to get really really sick while pretending i was totally and completely fine um so covered up a lot of stuff through middle school, high school, covered it up by with with kind of unhealthy relationships, lots of different things, and went into um, college where I was running um, as a division one runner. Um, I was really excelling in religious studies and in human services, but nobody had any idea that I was just completely crumbling in the way of compulsions, that I was staying up all night, engaging in all of these compulsions. I wasn't present in anything that I was doing but I was still somehow kind of figuring out how to live, um, live my life. So got to seminary um, at, at Candler and um, had kind of a similar experience, except things continue to get worse, was doing really, really well in school, was feeling good about my ordination process. But there was this other piece for me that was just absolutely crippling. Um, at the time, a lot of my obsessions related to checking, checking things like ovens, stoves, locks, making sure that everybody was safe and got to the point where I would do those things for like 12 hours straight overnight, wouldn't sleep, would drive back to churches to make sure that churches I was interning at um, had things that were turned off, had things that were locked. But at the time, I kind of had this idea of Okay, I know this is OCD. Um, I had taken enough psychology classes to know that. And I think I need to seek some form of evidence-based treatment. Um, but I had a someone in seminary um, tell me, if you do that, you're not going to pass your psych evaluations and you aren't um, going to be able to get ordained. So said, okay, and didn't get any form of help, um, continued to get sicker, continued to kind of suffer in silence. And then when I got to my first role in ministry, where I still am seven years later, um, I completely crumbled. My OCD, as it does for a lot of people, latched onto the things that were the most significant to me. So we always hear about kind of cleaning and things in, in the media where a lot, for a lot of times it has to do with worrying that you're a harmful person, worrying that you're not faithful enough, worrying that you're dangerous, worrying that you're harmful to people in your life that you care about, tends to attach to the people most important to you, whether that's a family member. For me, that was my students, where I was worried, well, what if I'm this horrible person? What if I'm dangerous to my students? What if I'm not worthy of being um, a minister? And it, it got pretty intense for me to the point that um, I was you know, doing trauma work with kids during the day and just going home at night and really didn't think I could continue, didn't think I could live anymore, didn't think um, 
I could make it from, from day to day. Didn't think I deserved to live anymore, quite frankly, and was very fortunate, um, with the help of, of family members to actually get evidence, evidence-based treatment for the first time for OCD, um, exposure and response prevention. And, um, that treatment, very much saved my life. And coming out of that treatment, I was going through a lot of different traumas and tragedies with students where unfortunately I lost kids that I was close to on, on account of mental health. And um, it really hit me that as a minister, I needed to not have shame anymore about the things that I struggled with, that it was actually about letting folks know that clergy can struggle too, and that there's no shame around that, and that you can and you should get evidence-based treatment, and that, oh, by the way, God actually wants you to live your life and, and get better and enjoy those beautiful gifts that you've been given. Um, so started to become significantly more public about that, and everything for me completely took off. So I was in a space previously where it was, oh, I have all this shame around it. Nobody's going to respect me as a minister and went from there really within a period of two years to um, serving as a lead advocate for the International OCD Foundation and planning faith and OCD conferences. We actually have a huge one on Monday, this coming Monday, which is super cool. It's our second annual and we're hoping to have like 800 folks there, which will be really cool. Um, and leading all of these new resources, doing research, all kinds of stuff and building out um, a practice, which I'll talk about. But it, it went really for me from this place of shame and this place of I'm not worthy of doing any of these things that I'm doing to this place of realizing that faith and mental health didn't have to be mutually exclusive. And when that very much saved and helped me reclaim my life, it was, oh, wait, <laughs> let's start having this conversation about what this means for, for clergy, but also for folks within faith communities. Uh, wow. Well, first, I want to say, like, I know I'm not the one who said it to you, but the, like, I am sorry on behalf of the person who told you that you couldn't seek help and that would prohibit your ordination. I feel like the work you're doing now is such a testament to the fact that seeking help strengthens ministry and that like owning your story. And like, I think the thing with shame that I have learned is when you're able to speak it out loud in a place where it has, is received in a healthy way is so powerful when you're able to hear someone say either, wow, me too, or like, you know, just hold it with love and compassion. That makes such a huge difference. And I feel like your work and your life is such a testament to the impact of that. Thank you. I, and that means so much. And I, I agree with so much with what you're saying about shame, where it, it felt so shameful for me for such a long time. And it was really interesting starting to speak my truth started really, really small. And I always tell folks getting into advocacy, you don't have to necessarily go and stand on a mountaintop and say like, this is my story. Here's all my struggles, <laughs> like for the very first time. Um, but it can start really small. And I was really surprised by the fact that, I, yeah, I was working with 2,700 kiddos as their chaplain. And I work with students who are Buddhist and Christian and Muslim and Sikh and Jain and, and, um, and beyond. And a lot of the kids that I had navigated mental health struggles with were from different faith traditions and families had a lot of stigma around this. And I thought, well, when folks 
hear that I struggle with my mental health, they're not going to respect me as a chaplain. They're not going to respect me in this leadership role. And it was completely the opposite. Um, I started hearing from families very consistently um, from different faith communities of, oh, you actually get this. And now we don't have shame in talking to you about this. Can you help us get X, Y, and Z treatment? Can you help us navigate this with with our faith community? And um, that's really been the story for me since the beginning, and especially doing a lot of public work with the IOCDF, folks that I hear from, it tends to be that they're feeling shame. And then they hear someone else speaking their truth. And they're not reaching out to tell me, oh, that's wrong. They're reaching out to say like, oh, me too. And like, we can be on this journey together. And that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. That impact of knowing you're not alone in it. So can you share with folks, you know, you alluded to this a little bit, that it's not these like cutesy little things we see on TV. Um, Share with us a little bit about what OCD is and also some of those misconceptions to help, you know, shed some light and help educate those of us who aren't as familiar with it. Yeah. um, So OCD, we call the doubting disorder, where you get really, really hooked on obsessions that typically aren't logical and you're trying to do compulsions to alleviate the fear that comes up. Um, They can literally be anything that you can possibly imagine. The kind of funny thing, the things we tend to see in the media around cleaning and organization. Yes, there are folks who navigate that. Um, For folks who are navigating that, it's not um, the way that we tend to see on TV where folks enjoy it. It's actually completely debilitating. But even more common are things where your obsessions relate to family members, to loved ones, to God, to things that are important to you, um, where often you're worried that you are a bad or a harmful person. Um, So for example, um, a really common obsession is um, around hit and run OCD, where somebody might be driving their car and they might hit a bump or maybe not. And then they're like, wait, did I just hit someone with my car? And, um, you would think, so for most folks, it would be, oh, I looked behind me and there's nobody there and I'm totally fine. But for somebody with OCD, it might be that they continue to drive, drive that same road 500 times to make sure they didn't possibly cause harm and to make sure that everything is okay. Um, and it becomes this obsessional process where the compulsions. Um, so in that example, it would be that person going back to check. It would be that person checking news reports. It would be for some folks I know actually calling police stations and saying, was there a hit and run? Could I have any way have been a part of this? Um, doing those compulsions actually strengthens the obsession where the person feels like they can never get certainty um, about that particular thing. And the tough thing with OCD is it really is this question of certainty. Folks with OCD tend to feel like they have to have absolute certainty, that they have to have certainty that they are a good person, that they didn't cause harm, that they won't cause harm, that they didn't say anything bad by mistake, that they won't say anything bad by mistake, um, that they haven't somehow contaminated someone, that they won't do that in the future. And The reality is that we all accept uncertainty each and every day of our lives. That's how we function as human beings. But folks with OCD tend to struggle with that. So even if there's a 0.001% chance that something bad could happen, particularly if it could be their fault, someone with OCD will say, I cannot take that risk. 
I have to engage in these compulsions, whether or not they relate to the actual obsession, because it feels like I'm keeping myself safe. It feels like I'm keeping my family members safe. It feels like that's the only way for things to be okay. So it's not this cute organizational thing. It's, it's so painful for me with the amount of advocacy I do so many at pretty much every situation I enter, somebody comes up and it's like, Oh, you have OCD. Can you come organize my towels? And it's like, no, I, I had obsessions for years about worrying that I was this absolutely horrific person that, that God hated and that was harmful to my students. And I wanted to die. That's what I want to say to all of those folks. And it's, um, it's just, it's, considered one of, by the World Health Organization, one of the top 10 most um, disabling conditions. Um, and it's not those cute things, but the kind of cool thing when we're talking about this is it's also one of the most treatable conditions, which is um, one of the pieces that I'm really, really passionate about. Mm. Can you say more about that? What is some of the, the treatment if it is one of the most treatable conditions? Yeah. So the treatment for OCD um, is called exposure and response prevention. And um, it's a type of cognitive behavioral therapy um, where an individual is exposed over and over again to some of the things that they fear, um, either um, in actually in front of them or, or, or by an imagine like in vivo or as an imaginal exposure. And the idea is that they don't engage in the response. So that's where the response prevention comes in. They don't engage in a compulsion. And over time with doing that, um, the false alarms that are going off in someone's brain um, kind of stop firing. Um, it's not that that person isn't experiencing the intrusive thoughts or the anxiety anymore. It's that they're able to actually sit with it. Um, and with the reality that we all experience thousands of thoughts every single day, they're not continuing to latch on in the way that's unhealthy. Um, so for instance, if someone's worried that they left, that they're going to leave the stove on, they might do exposures with a licensed clinician around turning the stove on looking at it and then maybe turning it off and walking away and saying, you know what, I may or may not have left it on. It may or may not still be on. My house may or may not burn down. I'm going to sit with it. I am not going to go back. I'm not going to check it. And all of the bad stuff might happen, but I'm going to choose my recovery anyway and sit with this anxiety. It's It sounds really, really simple, but it's such a hard treatment. So um, it, with particularly some of what we'll get into, I work with folks around religious type OCD, um, it, it literally feels like there's a bear standing in front of your face and you're saying, okay, I have to sit with this because this is how I reclaim my life. But there's such great research around actually the way that the brain rewires itself through this treatment where you really can reclaim this life without these false alarms going off very consistently. Yeah. The, the word that came up for me, and you can fact check me on this, is resilience, that there's a resiliency that's built like wiring in the brain. So I'm not taking, talking like spiritual resilience, but like there's a, an actual resilience that is built. Is that, does that sound right? Yeah, no, it, it, it absolutely does. Um, and it's, it, we always say it's getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and that's exactly what it is. It's not getting rid of the thoughts. It's not getting rid of the feelings. It's getting to the point where it's like, oh, that made me uncomfortable, probably OCD. I'm going to be resilient. I'm going to move on with my life. And I'm choosing life over my anxiety in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I imagine, so, so hard and also really empowering once you start to feel its effects. It's incredibly hard. And that's why there are 
adjunctive treatments that are used often alongside ERP um, and some folks who are listening, particularly because there are spiritual components with it, might be familiar with acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. And um, that's a value-based therapy where you're kind of picking the things that are the most significant to you. And even in the midst of, of hardships or difficult feelings, you're moving towards those things that are important. Um, there's a lot of ties with that to spirituality. And for a lot of folks, that value is their faith or is God. And the idea is, you know what, I'm going to do all of these really hard things so that I can get back to a value-driven version of my relationships or of my faith and of these things that God has created me to do in the world. Wow. Okay. So I'm curious about the getting comfortable with what's uncomfortable and this like desire for certainty and how that connects to faith, because faith is like generally so uncomfortable and like, it's a mystery and there's no certainty in faith. So how does this all connect and intersect for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess two, two different places. The, the first is um, the actual OCD subtype that's around faith, which is a lot um, of what I work with folks on. So there is um, a subtype of OCD called religious scrupulosity, which a lot of times folks are familiar actually with that term in faith, but don't recognize that it's actually a manifestation of OCD. And it's when um, someone is particularly obsessed with their faith and feels like they need to do things in a certain way um, in order to keep family members safe, in order for God to be happy with them, in order to um, not be considered sinning. There are lots of different manifestations. And for that reason, they might across religious traditions, pray in ways that are incredibly repetitive, seek confession in ways that are extreme. Um, engage in rituals of fasting, depending on the tradition in ways that are more extreme than others within that faith tradition. We say there's kind of an 80-20 rule and they're essentially we're trying to get folks back to a place where they're doing what 80% of the folks in their faith tradition are doing, as opposed to these extreme measures. Um, and the work that I do is primarily around religious scrupulosity. So um, I'm doing all of my doctoral research in this area and I'm opening a practice specifically where I work alongside clinicians who are treating using exposure and response prevention, but I'm helping navigate what's faith and what's OCD, particularly with religious scrupulosity. Um, and the tough thing, going back to your question, is there's a lot of uncertainty around faith. So that's kind of a breeding ground for folks with OCD where it's, well, I can't be certain about this. So um, I get questions from folks all the time. How do you know I don't have to pray 55 times a day in this particular way for my family not to die in a fire, right? And it's like, well, I don't, but we're going to take the chance that this is OCD and we're going to take the chance that we know that God is a loving God and that that's not a part of our theology. And we're going to lean into that. Um, so exposures that I end up working with clinicians and clients actually have to do with faith and have to do with leaning into the uncertainty about their faith. Um, and it's challenging. Um, I know for folks across faith traditions, it's it's been interesting for me to work with folks and learn the OCD tends to be when someone's engaging in a faith practice out of fear, 
And the faith piece actually comes out when they're engaging in it because it brings meaning, because it brings hope, because they actually want to engage in that. So I actually have a chart for folks and we pick out, okay, are you on the fear spectrum? Are you on the obligation spectrum? Because that's where your OCD is versus where your value-driven faith is. Um, and ironically, even with some difficult exposures where sometimes feel, folks feel like they're having to oppose their faith, the idea is that by accepting uncertainty around faith, um, whether it's OCD treatment or anything else, that you can actually get back to a healthy relationship with God, a value-driven version of your faith where you're not doing things out of fear, where you're doing things legitimately because you find joy and you find meaning in your faith practices. Um, but it's hard. It's hard to say, okay, I'm willing to sit with all of this uncertainty for anybody, but especially for somebody with OCD that that's, that's latched onto. I'm wondering how much good theology plays into this and not the fire and brimstone, we're all sinners theology. You know, what is the role that having a, a theology that isn't so sin and, and um, driven by that ideology and that fear, how, what role does that play in that? Yeah, that's such, that's such a great question. Um, and there isn't, a ton of research on this. And it's actually an area that we're doing some research studies right now, which is really cool. But anecdotally, um, having theological flexibility really helps folks, particularly as they're navigating recovery. Um, being able to have that theological flexibility like we would psychological flexibility is so significant. Um, I, I work with a lot of clients who are coming out of spaces of religious trauma where they had OCD, that was something that was a part of a part of um, of their life or of their makeup, but it totally latched on to everything that they heard in the pulpit. And it's so hard to separate that when it's one, I have, you know, this diagnosis anyway, and I've been told my entire life that I'm going to burn in hell. How do I reconcile that? Um, and it's incredibly tough for folks. Um, and that's a lot of the work I actually end up doing alongside clinicians is helping folks who are coming out of situations of religious trauma that have OCD navigate exposure and response prevention, and then not leave faith altogether, but get back to faith in a way that's healthy for them, which typically means a tradition that allows for more theological flexibility and is based around love of God, love of neighbor and love of self. That to me is the Holy Trinity. You know, like I have this image for me of the cross that is, you know, love of God, love of neighbor, love of self, right? The vertical line with God, the horizontal line with neighbor and the center is yourself. And I love that that is, that's the framework you're working in with folks to help them build back a theology that will, will hold the living water of Christ. You know, that's one of the themes of this podcast is a lot of us, you know, our wells are cracked with like the theology that didn't didn't hold the water, right? <laughs> and it ran dry. And so how do you help people build something that is stronger? And I love theological flexibility, that term. I'm going to put that in my back pocket. <laughs> it's, it's, and I, I really, that's a new one for me, honestly, with this Vanderbilt program, because it's, everything is integrative chaplaincy. So we're, we're, the, so my whole, whole demon program is focused on this intersection between faith and mental health um, and using 
techniques that we use in ministry and in chaplaincy alongside some of these um, modalities in mental health. And that's a piece that's come out for me where it makes so much sense in a mental health context, but in a faith context too, just how healthy theological flexibility is and being able to accept uncertainty about any aspect of faith or life, but still have radical faith in the love of God. And it's just, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, what you just said, it reminds me, I always talk about the recovery Trinity, which is very similar. So I tell folks for me, the recovery Trinity is having faith in God, having faith in myself and also having faith in my treatment, that those three things all have to align really to get to a place of healthy recovery and a return to a healthy relationship with faith. That's beautiful. I love that. I'm curious what role a sense of worthiness plays in all of this. Yeah. Um, so in terms of folks feeling like they're worthy of getting better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And worthy of God's love and we're, you know, yeah, just worthy in general. Yeah, absolutely. So, oh gosh, especially with the scrupulosity piece, whether that's moral or religious scrupulosity, um, this is actually the main thing I end up working with folks on, um, alongside their clinicians, because there tends to be this idea of with, with folks with OCD, I'm a bad person. I don't deserve to get better. Why would God love me? Um, I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything good. I don't deserve happiness. Um, and there's just this complete feeling of unworthiness, um, for things often that the person hasn't done (laughs) to begin with. Um, and it's incredibly, incredibly sad, So a lot of the work I do with folks um, will actually spend time doing meditations, um, even where we put our hand over our heart and we'll actually practice saying, um, I am worthy of God's love. God wants me to get better. God believes that I deserve happiness um, and lifting some of those things up. And it's really hard for folks that becomes an exposure in and of itself, because there tends to be this extreme feeling of, I don't deserve to get better. I don't deserve God's love. These intrusive thoughts make me completely void of any element of faith. Um, And I get it because I was very much there. Um, The turn for me in my recovery was for the first time when I realized that I did deserve to get better and that God did love me and that I had these gifts and talents to share with the world, regardless of my experiences, but also regardless of mistakes I had made in my life. Um, That we do not have to be perfect. We also don't have to be devoid of mental illness or anything else to have God's love and to be worthy of this beautiful, joyful life. Um, so that's a big factor for me, but also for a lot of the folks that, that I work with. And, um, it's really gratifying to see folks go from a place of, feeling like they don't deserve anything to being in a place of, you know what, God does love me. And I want to engage in this treatment to live this beautiful life that God has created for me. That's amazing. It sounds like the work you do is so like gritty and so important and like returning people's lives to them. And thank you. And and I, 
it's such an honor because that's, I feel like that's the gift that was, was given to me and, um, you know, get emotional, but it's, you know, if I look back even three years to the beginning of 2019, um, I looked like I was functioning in my role. I was so incredibly sick. Um, I felt like I was not worthy of God's love. I felt like I was not worthy of recovery. I felt like I was the one person who couldn't get better. And to be in a place now, um, in how I view myself and in how I view my faith and, and my ministry to be able to walk with others who are going through those things and actually say, no, you are worthy and you deserve to have this life um, is just the biggest gift. Yeah. What is your faith life now, you know, with holding, you know, your experience with OCD and, you know, the work that you're doing, what is going on for you at that intersection of faith and mental health for you? Yeah, that's, that's such a great question. So I think, you know, my, my faith life has shifted in a lot of profound ways over the last seven years, in part working in an interfaith setting with students. And um, I, I really, from that perspective, fall on a lot of Barbara Brown Taylor's work and really believe in this idea um, of holy envy and of finding God in the faith of others. And I think that my students have impacted me so profoundly. It was actually cool in the last two weeks, she got to come and spend time with me and my students here um, on my last semester. And it was really neat to get to engage in that. And for me, that's such a big part of my faith in, in finding God in these beautiful practices of my students. But then um, on the mental health side, I think, I think I've gone through some different phases, like a lot of my clients do, of um, feeling sometimes like the psalmist and feeling like, okay, God, why did I have to go through some of these really, really tough periods? Um, and then eventually getting to a place of, of gratitude. Of um, I always tell my students, I don't believe that God creates brokenness, but I do believe that God gives us opportunities to create beauty out of brokenness. And I wouldn't trade any of the things that I've experienced over the last 10 years for anything for where I am right now and the passion I find in this work um, in the ways that I feel God moving in this work. Um, I think now the place spiritually that I actually find God the most is in some of the support groups and special interest groups that I lead and getting ready with the new practice to start specifically an interfaith online congregation focused on folks who um, are in recovery from, from OCD um, and related disorders. And um, it's really neat. I'll, I'll get online with some of these sessions I do. And there's folks literally from every faith tradition all over the world sharing their experiences and sharing the ways that they've accepted uncertainty, sharing their theological flexibility and praying for each other, praying with each other, um, and also praying. Uh, the, the last one we were on, we had somebody, a, a kid who was, it was like 2 a.m. in Israel who was on there, um, who was saying, well, you know, if you, if you don't have enough faith that you're worthy, I'll pray that you feel worthy. I'll pray that you feel worthy of getting better. And for me, it's those spaces that it's like, God, God really is moving in this work. Ah, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So for you, you know, for folks listening, I, this is like a twofold question. I want to know for those listening who don't suffer with OCD, but want to better care for and support folks who do or who, who, who um, 
for folks who struggle with mental illness? And then also for folks who do struggle with OCD or other mental illnesses, do you have a word for them as well? So twofold for the, those who want to support and those who are experiencing it themselves. Yeah. Um, so for those who, who want to support, I'm huge on resources, 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 and especially for, um, for clergy who might be listening. I think it's so important to note that particularly in the area of religious scrupulosity, clergy are often on the front lines where someone might come to you and say, hey, you know, I'm kind of having these obsessions about prayer and I'm doing this thing really repetitively or I'm doing this thing um, in extreme ways. What do you think about that? And being able to maybe know enough about OCD that the response isn't, oh, you're being really faithful, that the response is, well, there might be something else going on here. Um, and places to find out information about that um, are things like the International OCD Foundation, um, where we actually have a ton of specific resources on this. So we have um, a big conference that's getting ready to come up specific for clinicians and folks with OCD and faith leaders. But we also have a new website that's launching in the next week specific to OCD and faith, where we have all of these resources for faith leaders in different traditions to be able to support folks in their congregations without offering reassurance or accommodation but offering legitimate support through their treatment. So um, I'll definitely put those resources up and would really encourage folks to, to plug into that. We've spent the last year working on that. So we're excited that that's launching and, and we'll hopefully offer um, clergy, but also folks in congregations, those resources, because folks do want to help, you know, and, and having the resources to help um, in effective ways and in ways where you're not offering reassurance, which is harmful for OCD can be can be really great. Um, and then for folks who might be listening with OCD, um, I mean, a couple different areas, again, International OCD Foundation, who I work with, great resources. We also have um, free virtual programming two to three times a week. So I'm actually I'm on a live stream with them later tonight. Um, we have all sorts of free support groups, special interest groups, anything that you can imagine, but also awesome conferences. We have a faith and OCD conference coming up along with two other pretty major conferences. So there's a lot of, of different components with that. Um, and then on both fronts, would just encourage folks also, the work that I do is with a new organization that I just launched called Faith and Mental Health Integrative Services, where um, offer support for clinicians and folks navigating OCD but on the flip side, actually do trainings for churches and for religious organizations, um, as well as clinicians to bridge that gap between faith and mental health. So lots of resource spaces um, and just hope that folks here, there are so many resources out there and that while this is a really, really tough disorder, there is so much hope. Um, and there is the great thing is it's so treatable and there is so much hope for living this amazing, beautiful life and re-engaging um, if you're separated from your faith tradition with that in a meaningful way. We will put all those links in the show notes so that folks can access them. Um, I'll make sure to get those from you, Katie, so folks can get those resources in their own hands. Well, Katie, I am so grateful for you and for you sharing your story and for seeking healing for yourself so that you can in turn offer that to others. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? I am. Okay. I looked at them a little bit, so I cheated a little bit. Okay. But... <laughs> That's great. I love it. <laughs> all right. Finish the sentence. God is. Hmm. Okay. God is loving. And I also have to add, God wants you to experience joy 
and God can handle your exposures during treatment. What is a favorite verse or story in the Bible for you today? I always go back to Mark chapter 12, verse 31, and Jesus really telling us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, And for me, I use this with my students all the time because sometimes we hear the neighbor piece and forget the self piece. And the idea that self-compassion and actually acknowledging that you are worthy is really a step to being able to um, offer that same love and compassion to the world and to those around you. Okay, we're going to take a hard right here. If I were to walk into a party and look for you, where would I find you? Probably talking with someone about mental health or interfaith (laughs) stuff or um, running. I I mentioned this a little bit. I'm doing 50 ultras in 50 states to raise money for folks seeking treatment for OCD. So pretty much anywhere I end up, I find like the one ultra marathoner in the room and we're like (laughs) hanging out by the water. So that's, (laughs) that's a big piece. That's amazing. Before we go to the next one, do you want to tell folks, I know on your website and we'll link to it, folks can support you. Can you just say real quick, what is an ultra marathon? Cause I don't know. And then yes, I, your I, goal is 50 before 50, right? Yeah. I totally forgot to mention this. So yeah. Um, ultra marathon is anything that's longer than marathon distance. So I'm doing things that are 50 K's all the way up to hundred milers. And I'm doing one in each state um, before the age of 50. I'm 32, so I have some time. It's like one every three or four months. Um, but in each state, I'm I'm fundraising. Um, I'm working with an organization called No CD that does low-cost virtual treatment that's evidence-based for folks in each state. And the goal is to raise $1,000 in each state because that pays for, for full treatment. And then No CD is matching so that we can pay for two individuals in each state and ultimately pay for 100 folks to go through OCD treatment. Wow. I, I can like run a mile. So I am so, I admire that so much and that you are putting it into such a, a powerful thing that you're turning that hard work into something really tangible. It's beautiful. Thank you. Okay. And I know on your website, we'll link to it where people can help support that effort. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's fun. You know, if folks want to support or if they just want to follow and see some races go really well and some like the one a couple months ago, I got stung in the face by a bee while racing. They can also like just watch crazy stories. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Wow. Okay. All right. Next question. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, okay. What is on your bedside table? Yeah. Um, so glasses, because I, I literally cannot see, see anything without them when I, when I wake up in the middle of the night and also a sound machine, which sounds kind of lame, but, um, it's like the two things that I need in order to sleep and in order to function. It's yes. Those are my two things. <laughs> Okay. What do you love about Jesus? Yeah. Um, I love that he loves me, that he loves my students, that he loves everyone I work with, um, despite things about ourselves that we may see as imperfect. Um, and that gives me so much hope and so much peace, knowing that regardless of how I see myself on any given day, um, that Jesus sees me as enough. That's a whole sermon right there. (laughs) What do you know for sure? Yeah. So OCD is all about uncertainty. So I often tell folks, I don't know anything for sure, because that's a part of the work that I do, but, um, I'm pretty certain. And this specifically is for folks with OCD who might be listening that 
you need to lean into uncertainty for a chance at recovery. Um, and that's what I always say is like, I'm, I'm certain that leaning into uncertainty gives you the best chance at recovery. Um, I am also certain that everybody deserves a beautiful life. Okay. Final question, Katie, what is filling your well right now? All, all of this work and in, in transitioning to something that I never thought I could do. Um, definitely engagement and my amazing fiance who also makes me feel like I am worthy and capable of doing this work. Um, and then running, um, my kind of hashtag for my 50 ultras is running towards my values. And I feel like that's, gosh, it represents so many things in my life right now, where every time I, I go out and run, I get to think about what does it mean to sit with all the fear, to sit with all of the discomfort around OCD, but actually run towards the things that are, that are meaningful to me in my life. Um, and that brings me hope and joy and, and fills my well every day. Thank you, Katie. I'm so thankful for you and just the work that you're doing and not, not just the work, but just who you are in the world is such a gift. And I hope that people follow you on social media because you have such a great presence there. And just the way that you minister to people is such a gift. So thank you for being who you are. Thank you so much for having me. This has just been so much fun and an honor. So thanks, Kelsey. Thank you. My friend, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you to Reverend Katie for sharing her brilliance and wisdom with us. And I hope that you get connected with her. We're putting lots of links in the show notes. Reverend Katie sent me a slew of things of resources that we can share with you all about embracing faith and navigating treatment and, uh, you know, faith and mental health resources. I hope that you go and check them out. Be sure to check out Katie's website, revkatieodun.com and get connected with her. We would also love for you to stay connected with us. You can find us at dancingpastor.org. We're connecting all our social media stuff in the show notes. And you can also sign up there for our weekly devotional email that we send out every Monday morning. And friends, thank you for being here. You are the people who make this podcast possible. And I'm so thankful for you. And thank you to Bree, our amazing sound editor, who makes all of this sound great as it comes into your ears. And now as you go out into your week, I invite you to receive this blessing. My friend, may you go forth into your day, into your week, and into your life, knowing that you are loved knowing that whatever challenges you face, particularly within the realm of mental health, may you know you are not alone, that God loves you, that we love you, and that you are a beloved child of God. May you go forth as the light in the world, as God's goodness in the world, held in the loving arms of our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. God bless you, my friend. Thank you for being here and have a great week.